Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions, and this is an ongoing, contrastive, devolution evolution (laughs) uh yeah involution of the state of hell um believe it or not yeah and we're segueing now is now directed toward william blake's proverbs of hell which is a poem in his book the marriage of heaven and hell and then, Andrew, you had something that you could tell us more so we could um, have more to hold on to. Well, I don't have all that much, but um, Proverbs of Hell are believed to have been composed beginning um, in 1789. And at, oh. at that point, um, William Blake, the poet and engraver and musician and political radical and mystic, was in his early 30s. He was um, 32. Um, most likely when he began to compose the Proverbs of Hell. Um, I know that the, uh, the marriage of heaven and hell, I remember from, um, some undergraduate course I took at Bard. I think actually this was mentioned by the philosopher Bertolt Bond. I took a class in philosophy and he mentioned Blake at one point. And he had said that this was Blake's, meaning the marriage of heaven and hell was Blake's first, um, full scale attempt to present his personal philosophy, that um, the marriage of heaven and hell was um, significant in Blake's evolution, because once again, it was the first time Blake really tried to pull together, not a systematic philosophy, because that would be antithetical to what he was after, but to articulate his his worldview, his his take on things in a more um, fulsome manner. So this guy, Jeffrey Keynes, writes in his introduction to a 1975 illustrated edition of the work of um, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. I quote, Blake regarded human imagination as the essential divine quality by which God manifested himself in man. And this is in that reference to um, what Jeffrey M. Keynes believes to be the, uh, the heart of The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. So let's talk about the Proverbs. Um, any thoughts? Well, the one thing that I had suggested is that we could do a reading of the Proverbs of Hell because it's not that long. And we could 
fire at will. You know, we could go around in our triumvirate and race these words between us and then maybe do a pause after we read a line and allow anybody to interject and then keep going. I mean, that would be one way of both, you know, of manifesting the Proverbs of Hell and also our own thoughts as they may magnetize around them. Yeah, I'm for that. But I, I just want to say before we forget that uh, 1789 is the year of the French Revolution, which uh, I think was um, something that Blake was really uh, inspired by. And isn't there a famous story that he took off his tricorn hat and stomped it on the ground when uh, Napoleon made himself emperor? That's when he lost his faith in the French Revolution, which is considerably later. So, you know, I think, you know, this, the idea that they're living in a revolutionary time where the king is being killed, the aristocracy was uh, abolished forever, as far as, you know, until now in France. It was a really a radical moment. And this whole Proverbs of Hell, which is kind of about turning everything upside down, turning all your uh, uh, received notions of the, the world upside down, I, I think, may be connected to that revolution. Well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Maybe too much we're, sense. <laughs> we're all about making sense here at Baffling Combustions. So what are we going to do? Go around and each read one and uh, at a time? Take turns reading them, you think? It's one way in and one well, way out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I just sort of thought this was a way, this would be a way for us to integrate with Blake. Definitely. um, Have a conversation with him. Yeah. And it is practicing the infernal method. We are burning into the palm. We're engraving Mm -hmm. into the palm just as Blake engraved his palms into, uh, what, stone or wood? What are they, woodcuts? Uh, Incidentally, I'm not sure it's a palm. I mean, to my mind, it's a, a work of prose. Like, it's a group of proverbs, <laughs> i.e. prose. But, you know, what do I know? No, I think that that's a totally valid observation, and indeed it is prose. That is correct. Mm-hmm. It is, nevertheless, a whole composition that has a poetic integrity it's elevated language hmm. in its aphoristic quality and in the rhythms that it evokes. So there's a poetic quality to the prose, that's for sure. And it might be a poem. I mean, it could be seen as a poem. I'm just saying, to my mind, it's not a poem. It's I'm a very literal person. If someone's going to call something Proverbs, I'm going to say, well, it's a bunch of Proverbs. You see a bunch of Proverbs, you don't think that's a poem. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, well, let's see if it... Uh, if it poeticizes us. I don't know. Let's see what it does to us. So this is entitled Proverbs of Hell. And the first line is, In seed time learn, in harvest teach, in winter enjoy. Interesting that it's the first, right? That it's it's kind of about sowing seeds, where that's the first, you know, few, first phrase. Yeah. As if maybe to say, I'm sowing seeds here for you to learn. You don't really think of him as being very interested in learning. I think the rest of the uh, Proverbs are not much about education. 
Yeah, there's stuff that t- that touches on intellectual acumen or something of that nature, but yeah, they seem pretty homiletic. Um, and I guess this one is interesting in that, you know, there's induction where you learn, and then there's exduction where you're teaching, leading out, you know. And then there's, in winter, is a period of enjoyment, a sort of synthesis or something. Hmm. I like, yeah, yeah and I, I, I like how the, the first um, proverb moves toward that synthesis. It's this process-driven. Hmm. Hmm. Ju- just as um, Blake believed um, the human life cycle was, that it's this, this, this process of, of, of becoming, of being formed and reformed. Huh. Mm-hmm. toward one's um i guess um final form or final geography or full realization of the spirit and body and body mm-hmm. spirit yeah and it also ties time to the cyclical nature of earth and um of what grows and dies and comes up again I mean, I don't see it as a synthesis. That's not how I read it. I mean, I think it's an interesting way to look at it. But to me, it's more kind of like there's learning, there's teaching, and kind of above them all, because since it's the last, is enjoyment, is pleasure. And I think that's part of his message is pleasure is not evil. Mm. Pleasure is, uh, in a way, our highest goal is to Mm. appreciate the world. But an aspect of to enjoy is also to enjoin, mm-hmm. is also to integrate, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. I mean, enjoyment is a state of engagement in which you lose a little bit of your shell. You know, you mm-hmm. lose a little bit of your identification, your mm-hmm. um and I think probably for Blake, in winter, enjoying also means in winter you do that which people who follow the Hebraic teachings do on the night of the Sabbath. Right, which it's about to be right now. I know. Hmm. <laughs> Something to look forward to. So now, let's, should we, now we're going to keep moving. Like we okay. should keep moving. Maybe I'll read yeah, the you, next one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Drive your cart and your plow over the bones of the dead. Pretty For me, wild that's, statement. I know. I, I love it. Reminds me of St. Petersburg. The, um, you know, obviously it's got a Christian echo. You know, let huh. the dead bury the dead. That's what I'm hearing. Hmm. Huh. Where is yeah. that from? Let the dead, dead, dead bury the dead. Oh. Oh, they came to our Lord Jesus Christ and they said, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, in Samara or in some town, a building collapsed and 40 people died. Mm. And Christ said, oh, um, well, you know, so what? <laughs> Let the dead bury the dead. Like, you know, look after your own mortal soul. Mm. Wasn't that it, Andrew? That sounds um, that sounds right. I was thinking, um, contrary to what you said, or in addition to what you said, there, that this proverb was a prescient um, of Nietzsche in some ways. That um, what uh, Blake was saying is, um, don't elevate death to a to a theology. 
Don't, mm. don't, don't worship um, dying, but worship flourish, worship um, becoming um, in your body, in real space and time. Drive your cart and your plow over the bones of the dead. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think it, it could be an, a critical of um, institutional Anglican theology. Of the worship of the dead Christ, in a sense. And I, and I think, and I think also that sort of way in which people, one can be, I know that may not be true for, for mm. us, obsessed with the past, mm. you know, and are constantly, as they say, rehearsing the past and going over past events and, oh, mm. I wish I said that and, Oh, what if I'd gone that way instead of the other? And, you know, I would have met this and that fortune would have befallen me. And instead, I'm mm. driving my cart, you know, into town to sell my rutabagas and, you know, nothing's going on that <laughs> great. So, I mean, that was also my take. And then also, it allowed me to sort of jump to my whole take on this. Uh, on an aspect of Proverbs of Hell, which is that it's a bit of a send-up of Christianity. Yeah. It seems somehow... Formally. A connected, uh, a, a critique of Christianity, but it's really hard to kind of put your finger on what exactly the critique is. The other thought that I had is just thinking about the French Revolution. It's like an image from the French Revolution, in my mind, but a later stage, the Reign of Terror where they would bring these nobles and other enemies of the revolution in a cart to the Place de la République to be uh, beheaded by the guillotine, you know. And, uh, and it was time for the, for the old to crumble and for the new to be plowed uh, down, plowed in. <laughs> and I think religion, too, is kind of all religion, in a sense, is the worship of the past and of the bones of the dead. It's time for something new. It's time to create our own new religions. Well, I wouldn't go that far about the new religions. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but I'm all for, you know, moving ahead. No, but I mean, I think that's what Blake is doing is he's kind of self-consciously uh, writing these new books of prophecy and sort of creating a kind of a new religion. I would say he's creating I, I a, a new theology. Different than religion. Yeah. Let's uh, hold that thought. Let's hold that thought, gentlemen. Because I I mean, you can't, I don't think that if the Proverbs of Hell ended with believed or believed, um, th then perhaps that would be true, that these are sprinklings of the eternal truth little gaps uh, through which the light shines, you know, on the path toward becoming a Blakeian or, you know, toward the founding of some religious um, path and, you know, with prescriptions and things like that. But that would ignore the whole last six paragraphs, um, you know, since, as you pointed out, Sparrow, this is a work of prose, in which he talks about the the erection or the proposition and flourishing of religions, and he 
denounces that as far as I can, but we'll get to these lines, but I'm not sure that Blake is forming a poetics, let alone a path of spiritual, some spiritual system. Well, I'm just saying he wrote a whole bunch of books of prophecy of which this is the first, the book of Uriel, the book of, uh, you know, I forget the names of them. Urizen maybe is one of them. You know, he kind of created something that seemed to be very similar to what the prophets of the Old Testament were doing. He had visions, he wrote them down, he gave a kind of consistent philosophy or theology, and that's, I was saying, he's creating religion. Maybe I'm using the word incorrectly. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that Blake is pointing toward a body of knowledge which might be construed as a religion that no longer existed or didn't exist in when he was extant, which is called Druidism. Oh. You know. Um, you see this as all Druidic? Well, I mean, you know, Blake, I believe that our friend Peter Lamborn Wilson seems to have found shards of written material in which Blake is recognized within the druidical faith as it was being practiced around London, you know, and outlying areas. I'm, um, yeah, prophetic. When Blake speaks of prophecy, he's speaking of poetic vision. He's not speaking of like the book of revelations of some projection of a mythical story being worked out or something. Um, What he meant by prophecy is that poets have the capacity to see things as they are and to articulate them. And they're not so much like religious books of prophetic um, calling. Well, I just read the whole pro- the whole book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. I misunderstood and thought we were going to talk about the whole book. And uh, oh. and he meets Elijah, you know, he meets Ezekiel and uh, Isaiah. And he seems to be sort of implying that they are poets like him. Yeah, mm-hmm. he says, um, a pr- the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel dined with me. And I asked them how they dared so roundly to assert that God spoke to them and whether they did not think at the time that they would be misunderstood and so be the cause of imposition. Isaiah answered, I saw no God nor heard any in a finite organical perception, but my senses discovered the infinite in everything. Anyway, I'll stop there. So it sounds like, uh, you know, Isaiah's just like uh, Blake, really. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I believe that totally makes sense, and it's in keeping with the Greco-Roman understanding of the prophetic as being the words or what those who are able to hear the the wind or the mind of God, um, you know, and then those those 
uh, uh, the speech that arises out of that listening or the writing that arises out of that listening is prophetic. So Blake really, he situated himself in the whole prophetic, Jewish prophetic tradition and that through that reference, Sparrow, to Isaiah. Yeah. That's And Ezekiel. And Ezekiel. Um, very cool. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, that, that was one of the things I was talking to myself about when I was trying to make notes about this after reading it, is it's tempting to make Blake into um, kind of a yogi or some kind of non-dualist of the type that, you know, is kind of popular today, maybe a Taoist. But it seems like it's not completely accurate that he's coming as you're noticing out of this Western tradition. And it's more like he's redefining what is a prophet than that. He's saying uh, everything is one. There's, there's no duality whatsoever. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of duality in the Proverbs of hell for sure. I, I mean, I, and I do think, though, just cir- just doubling back on what you said, that for all perhaps Blake's truculence in <laughs> articulating a spiritual path or religion, you know, he does come down to, I believe, a statement that is still has still not been realized. You know, that we are still living toward Blake. You know, we're not living from Blake. Blake is still out ahead in terms of the full realization of what he was pointing toward, I believe. So, yeah. And and we're about to get to one of his most famous uh, proverbs, which is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, addendum to what we're saying. I think I'll read it. No, no, rather, Rob, I apologize for jumping in, but I'm very envious of Andrew, to whom this next line falls. And I first heard this through the mouth of Jim Morrison of The Doors. Uh That was my entrance into this proverb. The the Doors, you know, The Doors are named after uh, one of the lines from Blake. Right. If the doors of perception were opened, we would see the world as it truly is, infinite. But I think it's not a proverb of hell. I think it's some from somewhere else. I think it's from, um, but it's in the collection, isn't it? The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. I don't remember reading it just now. Um, and the doors got the Blake through Aldous Huxley, through mm-hmm. Ray Manzarek, the keyboardist's reading of Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception. Which was, yeah, which is all about taking mescaline. Taking mescaline and looking at the chair and realizing the cosmos and at the molecular level. The quote is something like, if the doors of perception perception were cleansed, we would see things as they are or infinite. That's a mistra- That's a missaying, but that's a nice way of saying it, isn't it? But what is it? What's the correct way? I think it. I think it's when the doors of perception are cleansed, things will be seen as they truly are, infinite. But strange, I, as they truly strange. are, comma, infinite. infinite. 
yeah, yeah there's I, a comma there. I may be misremembering. But that's or maybe what, a colon. And also, like, how do you cleanse a door? What does that mean? You know, normally you don't cleanse your doors. You open your... That's why I misremembered it as when the doors of perception are open. But it's a strange, you know, strange metaphor, kind of a mixed metaphor. It is a mixed metaphor. I know, because... The back in the day, you didn't have like porch doors, you know, like window doors. Otherwise, you just bop out the Windex. Oh, yeah, uh, right. If you have a window door and you cleanse the window, that would make some logical sense. Windex. Yeah. But the the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Hmm. Hmm. The road to excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Say no more. Yeah, it's lovely. It has some kind of lovely metrical beauty. Balance. More than the other two so far, I think. Right. Um, I was, uh, one of the reasons, many reasons I'm, I'm down on the, uh, the Roman Catholic priesthood. <laughs> that it, um, uh, you know, all that abstemia stuff at the beginning. Mm. If, you, if you go into seminary at a young age, as a priest did at one point, you don't get a chance to um, travel the road of excess, it, mm. and you're expected to like move on to wisdom, but um, you know you really haven't lived in um, many ways, sexually perhaps, or in terms of travel. I don't know. They should do a rum. What are the uh, what's it oh, called? Yeah. Rum, rum Springer rum, is that what it's called? Yeah, they should do with a the, rum uh, Springer. With yeah. the Amish kids get to spend a year, kind of. Going wild. <laughs> yeah, Dude, get the Trans Am and... Get it, get an all trans. Yeah. <laughs> Does that happen? Are, are, are those years, years of Bacchanalian? I, I heard recently, like, I don't know, 10 years ago, that all the Amish kids are, are becoming heroin addicts during their, like, rumspringer these days, you know. Like, you know, in America today, you know, you can't have what's the word moderation you know everybody becomes addicted to everything but i think traditionally it was more like some kind of gentle hijinks that's how i pictured it but i don't really know my mother's pennsylvania dutch but she's mennonite she was raised mennonite i don't know i never i don't know anything directly about it from my extended family i never heard anything about it the question i have is I mean, I find myself instinctively vociating that statement. I believe the road to road of access leads to the palace of wisdom. Yeah, you know, I just sort of like, oh, for sure, yeah, of course. But is that true? I know. I, when I mean, you are there talking, examples Andrew. of like big time bacchanalian cats who? At the end of, um, you know, their complete satiety of passions and excess, suddenly they flip and become wise, or I'm not, I don't know. I remember thinking um, about my friend, Doug, Doug, I won't, I taught with him, he was a classicist. He Mm. was born on the Lower East Side in Stuyvesant Town. You know, he really lived a Lower East, um, East Village, Lower Manhattan life, and uh, went to Fordham, became a oh. classicist, started teaching, 
real cool guy, like the le- the Lizard King of um, the Lower East Side, and, and a very cool, um, smart guy. And he lived a life of excess. But I remember seeing him at the end, um, very diminished by it all. And mm-hmm. that was as most people are. Early on in my my adulthood, that was um, I was just very aware of that. It left an impression. I mean, I'll tell you who comes to mind for me is uh, Lou Reed. Oh. I was just thinking about this in uh, her uh, sort of uh, elegy to him right after he died. Uh, Laurie Anderson wrote a little like two paragraph piece for Rolling Stone and talking about what a kind, good person he was, which contradicts everything everyone has ever said about Lou Reed. But she said something like he spent two hours a day doing Tai Chi. So he was a guy who really uh, lived the the path of excess, seems like. You know, of, among famous people, he seems like a pretty uh, good example. And uh, it seemed like it did kind of lead in his case. Plus, let's think of AA, I think. AA is kind of proof of this, yeah. that, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, people who really overdid it reached to this, I think, very spiritually evolved um, uh, group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, a path of renunciation at the end of excess. But, yeah, I think that well, maybe definitely, that's yeah, as I think I've said before, Uh, Somebody asked the Dalai Lama, you know, what's the best thing that the West has produced? And he said, Alcoholics Anonymous. Wow. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, I I could kind of think of William Burroughs, actually, who, Hmm. you know, is a heroin addict and, you know, somehow managed to keep it um, in check a bit. I'm not sure he ever particularly kicked heroin but i don't know it just kind of maybe just slid off of him and hmm. rose you know in his later life was brimming with a kind of wise patina or radiance and also his words you know and his attitude and the application of his understanding of the past and his understanding of the understanding of how things don't change and, you know, therefore able to really see things as they are, et cetera. He was, um, come to mind. in the late nineties before he died, he was very, you're right. He was very visible. He was, he was collaborating and recording things. And I remember several CDs that were circulating of his spoken words. He was um, in with the punks with uh, Patty Smith in particular. Yeah. And then some of the grunge bands too. Who nodded to William Burroughs in some level. Bob Dylan, you know, talk about the path of excess leads to the Palace of Wisdom. Uh, because I recently read, as you know, Andrew, your book about Dylan, Light Come Shining, right, like, right next to me. Yeah. And uh, it seems like his various excesses, you know, that that show that you and I both saw two years ago, it really seemed like here's a guy who's done everything, tried to destroy himself with drugs, failed, and kind of reached some kind of higher level of just compassion and love. What Wasn't mm. that show, weren't those shows top-notch? I mean, they were just like, they were different than everything else. They were kind of, they were just really loving. 
Yeah. I mean, beyond anything else, they were a little bit weird because they had those women. I don't know if we've discussed this in a podcast. Like, you know, there's like these six women standing backstage, gorgeous, erect women kind of in shadow. And then after a while, you realize they're mannequins. And then suddenly the light changes and they disappear. And it's like, it seemed very profound, you know, even when you're not on drugs. But mm. but the show itself was just like something about it. it was like it was, I don't know, it wasn't like seeing, you know, Sonny Rollins, someone who's really a great, talented musician. It wasn't like seeing a punk band. It was like seeing a particularly 77-year-old guy who'd been the voice of his generation, been forgotten, Return, fought his way back, and now was just sort of sending out, you know, this sort of beautiful uh, acceptance to the world, kind of. Yeah. And it wasn't, and it wasn't excessive. Excessive. Yeah. Yes, it was very unexcessive. Yeah, it was very uh, what's minimalist, kind of. Mm. That's um, the show after which I saw Bob Dylan. Um, very. That's early. right. Just just a foot or two, you know, maybe three or four feet away. He was dressed like a Portuguese gentleman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on his way to the car. Yes. Uh, after the concert, you'd slipped out or something, and so had Bob. Yeah. And he was I holding mean, the arm of his, his bodyguard very daintily, like almost like an 80-year-old woman would. Mm-hmm. Just at the, the tips of his fingers, you know, on the forearm of his <laughs> That is a great image. Uh, to me, uh, feeble on no. stage. No. But, no. but uh, yeah, it's like he another personality took him over. The Palace yeah. of Wisdom personality. Yeah. The one thing I would say, you know, just in terms of the furnishing of the Palace of Wisdom, is that ecstasy, what we call ecstasy, which is sort of the, I guess, the apogee of excess as you fall into a state of of ecstasy, of hmm. complete saturation of desire, is is actually an is the absence of desire, because hmm. you're you're in and in a state of ecstasy, your desire is completely fulfilled, and hmm. therefore there is no desire, hmm. and so I guess sometimes this state of wisdom is consonant with not. To be with non-attachment, I guess you know, with not trying to get something, not having, having no desires. desires. Yeah, hmm. that's an interesting. You know, I I was thinking about system. Leonard Leonard Cohen as well. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, as, as an artist who and has played with these ideas and I think lived them too. Mm-hmm. And in the end of his life, um, I saw him as a great sage, and I I was fortunate enough to see his two final tours when he was oh, really um, in his later 70s yeah and he would play for three hours talk to the audience yeah mm-hmm. so moving right along uh, prudence so yeah prudence is a rich ugly old maid courted by incapacity very politically incorrect now <laughs> a rich ugly old maid yeah rich that's interesting isn't it I, I guess if you're prudent, you, you tend to hoard or, you know, um, save every, I don't know, you become rich. Is that through your industry and prudence? 
circumspection. I mean, I took it more that like prudence is has a certain richness to it, a certain wealth mm-hmm. that there. You know, I think that's part of what I'm trying to get out of uh, Blake is that you know if he had written prudence is an ugly old maid courted by incapacity, that would be you know it would seem pretty clear what, that it's a condemnation. But rich, that I think, you know, I think he's refusing to to be dualistic. He's refusing to say that prudence is utterly valueless. It has a certain wealth. Mm. On the other hand, it's, you know, it's a very limited kind of wealth. Right. And, the, and it's a kind of wealth that, as Andrew says, is realized through hoarding, through holding on. Yeah. Um, And this incapacity, I mean, I think it seems to me to also point toward men, like the men are courting a woman, Mm. and the men incapacity usually means that you no longer can achieve concubescence. And yeah, yeah, and then so it's like sexually. Too messy. Yeah, I do. And then and then so like, oh, I can't I can't get it on. So now, oh, you know what? I can be a prude. I can be judgmental. <laughs> I can be, you know, picky. And um, I can be a, a tight. And I can still fit in. You know, like I can still be part of the game of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I took it to mean incapacity means you're not you don't have much talent you're not much of anything you're kind of weak you're 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 a very limited person and but you can be very prudent you know you you just picture i'm thinking maybe of the banker in uh, mary poppins the old doddering banker played by dick van dyke in a double role and he's lecturing the children if you save your tuppence, you will gradually, hell, you'll have thruppence, you'll have quadruppence. You know, he's, it's the wisdom of prudence. But this, these are the kind of people that, that don't have any imagination, they don't have any zest. So it's easy for them to be prudent because mm. they got nothing going on. No verve. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no that's life. That's much better than mine. Oh, reading. Yeah, I think you're. Um, well, I think both levels of like actually your interpretation, because I think on a literal level, why is incapacity drawn to this rich, ugly old maid? I think incapacity is um, which is capitalized. So it seems to be a person is greedy, wants the money of the ugly old maid. And since he can't get it up anyway, it's like, well, I can get the money. That's what uh, all I can get. Yeah, and you can get gout. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say, a few of these proverbs, I kind of put my foot through the floor. Like, I couldn't quite get solid ground on them. And I think that's kind of part of what I have glommed onto, which is the sort of the um, send-up of Christianity, kind mm. of. Yeah. A little bit. Anyway. Yeah. 
Okay, so we're ready for the next one? Yeah, let's hear the next one. Okay, which seems a little bit related to come out of the one we were just discussing. He who desires but acts not breeds pestilence. Now, this is really one of those um, proverbs that uh, prefigures Freud. Um, yeah, yeah. So profoundly in terms of the, the, the repression of the libidinal energies and that, that leading to the development of neuroses, um, the breeding of the pestilence. Neuroses, which very almost Buddhist sense, create a lot of harm and injury and uh, definitely like a pestilence socially right? because people act out and hurt other people and project. Right. I mean, what makes me, what I notice is what I think is different than Freud, who is really essentially limited to the individual. The The word pestilence implies a contagious disease. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of different than, I think, what Freud is saying. Yeah, he Freud. who desires but acts not breeds pestilence doesn't just decay inwardly, as Freud would say, or something like that. But acts out. But, well, maybe not just, but also it, it, it conveys it to other people. It's, it's contagious. Other people start also. Yeah. Maybe that's what Christianity is, is the contagion of uh, not acting on your desires. You know, it starts teaching other people, you know, you must uh, control your natural evil instincts. Maybe that's the, you know what we call education as a kind of pestilence. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.